Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to uh, the Medical Detectives Lecture Programme, which is part of the university's programme for public understanding of medicine, and I hope that you will enjoy yourselves this evening. Uh, the Medical Detectives Lecture Series is inspired by the work of Conan Doyle, who was a medical student here in Edinburgh around the time that this uh, lecture theatre was in regular use as it has been to this day. It is the most uncomfortable one that we have functioning. <laughs> and he, of course, said he, as you will all know, devised the character of Sherlock Holmes. And he said that he got his idea from the way that the people who taught him medicine worked, picking together bits of evidence and adding them up to make a picture. And, of course, that is how he wrote his books, but that is how medical advances are still made. And how these medical advances are made and what they are is really what these lectures are about. Our speaker this evening is Professor Stephen Wigmore, who is the Professor of Transplantation Surgery. And he is going to talk on the case of the vanishing yellow man. Stephen. Thank you very much, um, Professor Johnston. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great um, privilege for me to be invited to uh, give this lecture, and it's a great series um, of lectures to, to come to. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle um, was quite an intriguing person. He was trained as a, a medical student in this university and then chose a different career, as more successful as a writer than uh, as a doctor. Um, but uh, he was a very interesting man, and there are lots of um, fascinating and very um, uh, interesting quotes that he um, left us. When, when I was researching a little bit about um, uh, Conan Doyle, I heard this story about him which I found quite uh, amusing. And when he was a, a high-spirited uh, clinical medical student towards the end of his training, he signed up uh, to go on a whaling ship out of Peterhead. And not only did he look after the crew on this voyage which went uh, towards Greenland, but he also went whaling in a boat. And he fell out so many times that he gave, uh, was given this nickname of the Great Northern Diver, which is the reason for this uh, <laughs> bird there. So as Professor Johnston said, uh, Conan Doyle was very um, impressed by the, the uh, incisive and interrogative minds of some of the professors who taught him, and no more so than Joseph Bell, who's uh, shown here in these uh, beautiful portraits which hang in the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And Bell was uh, the, um, uh, a, a prominent educator uh, and actually was uh, Conan Doyle's boss in uh, 1877 when he actually worked directly uh, for him. And um, he was, uh, went on to be um, president of the College of Surgeons, and this is actually Joseph Bell uh, sitting in the high chair there. So quite a, an imposing gentleman. You can see there are two members of ZZ Top uh, <laughs> in the uh, college council at that time. So the question, I guess, that you're all wondering is, who is the yellow man? And this is the yellow man. The yellow man is someone with cirrhosis of the liver, a serious condition, often fatal. And the vanishing, where does that come from? Well, these are mortality statistics for cirrhosis for Scotland in the green, 
Europe in the blue and England and Wales in the red. And you can see that we have a major problem. There's an epidemic of cirrhosis, and it's a very uh, unpleasant condition, which is often fatal. And so yellow men are vanish vanishing, and women, uh, because they're dying. And we don't want to see yellow men. We'd rather have pink men. Uh, and this is what this lecture is really about, how we approach uh, the problem of liver failure and deal with it. So just to explain a little bit about cirrhosis, cirrhosis can be caused by lots of different uh, factors. So the body's own immune system, viruses such as hepatitis B or C, alcohol, which we read about in the newspapers, and more recently there's been an increasing association between cirrhosis and obesity. So all of these disparate uh, factors can lead to the same condition, which is quite intriguing in itself. And the reason that they do this is because they all share common uh, actions. They all cause repeated insults to the liver, resulting in cell death, which in turn causes scarring. And the liver is the only adult organ which is capable of regenerating, and it tries to regenerate, to, to restore itself. And, th and that's why you end up with these bumpy nodules in the cirrhotic liver. The nodules are actually areas of the liver that have tried to regenerate and because they're bumpy because of all the scarring around them which restricts the normal uh, formation of the liver. And so if we look at a patient with uh, chronic liver disease with cirrhosis, over the course of their disease, which may take many years, the liver will become more uh, nobbled and gnarled, it'll become smaller, it'll become resistant to blood flow through it and its function will deteriorate to a point where it fails completely. So this is the, the natural history of cirrhosis. And the symptoms of cirrhosis, jaundice is the most obvious one because we can see it with our own eyes, but it's a much more complex disease that, than that, and it affects all of the different organ systems of the body. So our muscles become weak, we develop fluid in the abdomen, can, the patients are at risk of bleeding from the intestine, they become confused, their brain doesn't work properly, and they become susceptible to infection. And any one of these, or a combination of them, uh, more commonly, can be fatal. So this is a, a nasty, progressive, long-term condition. So we don't really need Sherlock Holmes to help us with the diagnosis, because the diagnosis is relatively straightforward and uh, it's relatively easy to make. The, the question that's more uh, difficult and complex is what are the treatment options? So if we were to split this down into a logical process, you might say, well, let's see what happens if we just treat the symptoms. And there are lots of different treatments that are currently in use for uh, cirrhosis. So these treatments will reduce the chance of patient bleeding. These reduce the chance of fluid accumulating in the abdomen. These will reduce itching and the physical appearance of jaundice. And these um, affect confusion and coma. And all of these treatments have an important role in modern day medical practice, but they don't alter the disease process. So what we're talking about is symptom control. Occasionally they will prolong people's lives, but the underlying disease remains the same and progresses. We could replace the liver. And when this was first mooted as a possibility, 
it might have, someone might as well have said, well, let's fly to Mars, because it was such a, an abstract idea. And it really took a, an exceptional person a, a, to tackle this problem, and that person was Tom Starzl. He was a surgeon in uh, Denver, in Colorado, and he had this belief that it would be possible to transplant the liver, a very, very complex organ compared with a kidney. And he started uh, practicing transplanting on dogs, and then he got permission from his hospital to transplant a human liver, and his first four patients all died, and some of them didn't even make it out of the operating room. But each time he, he learned more, and his team, and they developed techniques, and they kept going. I'm not sure whether you could actually probably do that now. You'd probably be stopped from practicing by the regulatory authorities. And it took a lot of um, belief in, from his institution and also from his team to keep going. But they were successful, and they broke the back of this difficult problem of, of doing a liver transplant. And doing a liver transplant has been likened to changing the engine in a car, which is fine. It's you know, lots of pipes and hoses. But the trick is, while the car is driving down the road, that's the tricky bit. So uh, Tom Starzl plowed a, plowed a load furrow in, in America and actually um, started liver transplantation. In, in the UK, it was really pioneered by Sir Roy Khan who, in Cambridge, who did the first uh, transplant here uh, in the UK. And uh, he's uh, still alive and well, uh, Roy Khan. It was uh, quite a bit later that the Scottish liver transplant unit was set up, actually in 1992. Um, and uh, the, the key sort of individuals uh, involved in that process are shown here. Uh, Neil Finlayson was the hepatologist who headed the, the uh, liver medicine unit at the time. And it was actually him who was really desperate to offer a treatment in Scotland that was only available in Birmingham and London at the time and, and some places in Cambridge. Uh, James Garden was the young surgeon who uh, had just come back from Paris where he'd gone to learn how to do a liver transplant. And David Carter uh, was the, um, uh, the political influence and the, the person who had the organizational ability to, to make it happen. And so the, the liver transplant unit was born in 1992. And I actually started working in it about four years later in 1996 as a trainee uh, and did my training there. And almost immediately, the, the unit started to produce really dramatic outcomes. And so people who could barely um, get up and get themselves dressed were able to enjoy their grandchildren. And uh, this man, who's a friend of mine, Brian, who I transplanted, I think, 12 years ago, uh, you know, has now written three novels and uh, lives a very full and active life. Brian, incidentally, nearly started a riot because he uh, told everybody that after his liver transplant, his golf handicap dropped by four, and he <laughs> assured everybody that it was due to the fact that his swing had improved. I actually think it was because he wasn't encephalopathic anymore, and there was only one ball instead of two to hit. So uh, we've just had our 20th anniversary for the liver transplant unit. We've transplanted well over 1,000. In fact, we're getting on for, for 1,200 um, patients now. And so this could be a very short le le lecture, and it's a huge success, and that's all wonderful, and there's lots of happy patients. However, liver transplantation has its limitations. 
And perhaps the biggest one is the shortage of organ donors. So there's just simply not enough livers to meet the demand of patients. And, and that's a, 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 an eternal sadness for us when uh, patients that we could save die um, for want of a, a donor organ. And we have tried to, to uh, deal with this problem. We've tried to expand liver transplantation by splitting livers in two so that uh, the small part on the left can be given to a baby and the larger part can be given to an adult, and that's very successful. Uh, we've uh, started doing living donor liver transplants where uh, a patient can donate half of their liver to uh, a friend or relative. We've uh, expanded the way that we, or changed the way that we do organ donation so that uh, we can include people who die in different um, ways that were hitherto unused. And we've extended the criteria of donor organs that we're prepared to use. And all of this requires a, a huge amount of um, teamwork and effort, and we have a great team here. But even with this, it's not possible to meet, get anywhere close to meeting the demand. And uh, uh, transplantation, while it's a wonderful uh, thing to do, um, is limited by the lack of donors. So we could look at this in a slightly different way and ask the question, can we learn anything from Prometheus? I'm sure you all know the story about Prometheus. So Prometheus was stole fire from, the, uh, from Zeus and was punished by Zeus by being chained to a rock. And an eagle was sent down every day, here's the eagle here, and would eat his liver and uh, he, the liver would regenerate overnight, and then the eagle would come down again and eat his liver again. And uh, so Greeks obviously understood uh, the, the fact that liver could regenerate. This eagle is particularly clever because it's a, a laparoscopic eagle <laughs> that can remove the liver through a tiny little hole. We, we're not quite so good at that. Um, but the important thing is that the liver is an organ which can potentially regenerate itself. So when I sort of lie awake at night, I, I think about these questions and how we're going to answer them. And, and in particular, what can the normal liver teach us about the consequences of having cirrhosis? Particularly because I'm a liver surgeon and in my daily work, I do uh, big operations on people's liver that allow us to do interesting experiments, obviously with their consent and permission, uh, that can ask, uh, address some very important questions. And the first thing that we realized was that we needed, there was a fundamental uh, issue about understanding the relationship between the volume of the liver and its function. And although we have lots of blood tests and things that we can do, there aren't actually any particularly good measures of liver function. And so we, we had to develop some new technology uh, to help us do this. What we did was to make three-dimensional computer models from people's scans of the liver and then we were able to actually operate on them on the computer workstation rather than on the body to uh, create uh, surgical operations that then allowed us to measure the volume of the different components of the liver. We had to create a whole new terminology um, to do this. So this is a, a, a three-dimensional model of the liver on the right panel, and on the left you can see the actual uh, liver remnant in this patient and they've had three-quarters of their liver removed for a cancer operation. And the graph at the top here shows the very good correlation between the computer prediction and the actual 
uh, measurement. So for the first time, we've got a really good way of getting a handle non-invasively in patients on what their liver volume is. So the, once we could do this, we asked the question, how much liver tissue do you actually need to survive and function? And the first way that we looked at this was by using a, a clinical biochemical score of liver failure. And we looked at our patients who had had various different magnitudes of liver resection and looked at what happened in terms of their liver failure score. So effectively, you could remove uh, up to about 70% of someone's liver with a relatively low risk of causing them liver dysfunction or liver failure. But beyond that, there was a very high incidence of, of liver dysfunction, liver failure. And actually, the, the figure that we came up with was around about 26% of normal liver. So that's quite an important to, um, thing to, to know. And then the next question we asked was, does loss of liver cause metabolic failure, or can the metabolism of the liver actually adapt? And so in another group of patients who were undergoing a, a major liver resection, we, we actually measured their urea synthesis. So this is the volume of the liver before and after resection, dropping by 50%. And this is what happened to urea synthesis. So absolutely nothing happened. And when I first saw this, I thought, oh, that's a bit disappointing, until I remembered, of course, that we've only got half of a liver. So if you actually look at what's happened to the liver, urea synthetic rate per gram of liver tissue, it's doubled. And this doubling happened instantly. So the metabolic adaptation of the liver is amazing. It happens instantaneously, and, and it can really ramp up its activity to cope for uh, loss of tissue. And if you sort of follow this curve out, what you see is that this, the liver compensates and compensates for, for loss of volume to a critical point, this tipping point marked by the blue arrow, and then it falls apart and the, the, the metabolic compensation can't happen anymore. And so this, again, comes out at about 27%, so very close to the other figure that we, we calculated. So in two, using two different technologies, we've, we've really shown a very similar uh, critical um, liver volume. We then tried to look to see whether loss of liver uh, caused increased infection risk. And... Um, Essentially, it does. So if you have less than 30% of your functional liver volume left, you have a much higher risk of infection or severe sepsis, which is a sort of a worse form of infection. But we couldn't actually use it, this test specifically to predict a volume at which that happened. So this is all very interesting to me, at least. I hope it's interesting to some of you. Because in the evolutionary terms, uh, responses to infection are very strong drivers for adaptation. And uh, so particularly the, this association between uh, the infection risk and the liver regeneration uh, became quite compelling for me. So we decided to design another new technology because we had no way of testing the, the immune function of the liver. And so what we did was to make some little microspheres of uh, out of human albumin and label them with a little radioactive probe, which is the Technetium 99 there. And you can see what they look like under an electron microscope here. And in this bottom panel here, the green uh, fluorescent things that you can see are liver immune cells, which have actually taken up these particles. Uh, and then 
This is the actual liver uh, in a, under a gamma camera showing that uh, about 96% of the label that we give ends up in the liver in these uh, immune cells. So it's a good way of targeting the immune cells. And we asked this question, so if you remove normal liver tissue, what is the effect on macrophage clearance of simulated bacteria? And to do this experiment, we, we did this test with a technician the day before a major liver operation, the day after, and uh, seven days after. And the study group had more than half of their liver removed, and these were patients who had cancer, obviously. There was a good reason for them to have half of their liver uh, removed. The uh, control group had a, 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 their abdomen opened as if they were going to have a liver resection, but didn't actually have a liver resection. And that was usually because um, their disease was more extensive than had been predicted, and they were not technically operable. And what we found was that um, the uh, patients who uh, underwent a major liver resection had a huge shift in their immune clearance, their deterioration. And interestingly, it became the same level as a group of patients with advanced cirrhosis. So the, by removing a lot of tissue, you, you create the same sort of immune uh, environment in the liver that you have in advanced cirrhosis. So looking at the other side of this, we've done another experiment using the same technology. And what we've done here is to actually look at the restoration of immune response that happens after a liver transplant. So on the left, you'll see that patients with cirrhosis have far worse clearance than healthy control patients. And then if you do a liver transplant on them, their immune function uh, almost immediately returns to normal, well, at least with, within a week. So, so that's very good. So what have we learned about the liver from this sort of series of experiments? Well, it has a huge capacity for metabolic compensation. But when it decompensates, the, the drop-off is very steep. And this is important from mirrors what happens in a clinical situation. So when patients with chronic liver disease or acute liver failure get sick, they become the sickest patients in the hospital very quickly. The liver is important for infection, and repair of the immune function takes longer than metabolic recovery. So in those patients who had the liver resection, the immune deficit carries on for quite a long time, and it takes a long time to recover. And I think the most important thing for me uh, as a, a surgeon on the edge of, of um, liver failure is that the difference between liver function and liver failure is very small, and it may even be a matter of grams. And that's important also when you think about cell therapy, because perhaps you don't need to completely regrow a liver to make someone better. Maybe you just need to get a, a, a decent engraftment or a 2 or 3% increase in the, the cell volume to, to make a difference. So the question that comes to me after all of this is, what if liver regeneration isn't driven by uh, metabolic demand? Because we've seen that, that uh, metabolism was able to adapt very quickly. But actually, it's driven by a need to restore immune function. So that, that's quite a, a, a sort of um, unusual perspective to take. And um, we've got a growing belief that the liver cell and the immune cells may have a very important interaction that regulates uh, regeneration. So to, to address these questions further, um, we need to go to my very good friend and colleague, um, Stuart Forbes, who's the, my, my um, uh, counterpart on the medical side. So he's the 
professor of transplantation medicine. And he, Stuart has a particular interest in how uh, cells uh, know how to repair themselves and regenerate in organs. He's a stem cell specialist. And uh, he's particularly interested in the signaling pathways that tell cells to do what to do. And I'm going to present some of uh, Stuart's work along with um, Luke Bolter, who's a, a genius, rising star biologist um, in the university, and Ben Stutchfield, who's a young surgeon who's also a rising star. So um, Stuart and Luke asked this question of how progenitor cell fate is determined in the diseased liver. So in, in, the, in a patient with cirrhosis, there are lots of stem cells or progenitor cells that, that appear, and this, this is part of the attempt of the liver to repair itself, to regenerate itself. But nobody actually knows why, how these cells uh, decide to become one type of cell or another. And what they found was that it's all to do with sort of special signals. So if uh, the notch pathway is expressed in cells, they become bile ducts. And if the wint pathway is expressed in cells, they become liver cells. And this all seems to be regulated by macrophages in the liver, which is really interesting because the cells that we were talking about uh, in relation to immune function and clearance of these particles are also macrophages. And macrophages are made in the bone marrow and uh, come into the circulation, and they also live in tissues. So there are, there are uh, macrophages that float around in, in your blood, but also ones that live in tissues and have specific functions. And one of the interesting uh, molecules uh, associated with macrophages is colony-stimulating factor 1, which I'll talk a little bit more about uh, in a minute. But that uh, has an important uh, uh, effect on uh, growth and uh, differentiation of macrophages. And it basically drives macrophages towards a more repair-type uh, behavior rather than an aggressive behavior. So if you, if you actually um, take a, a mouse and uh, subject it to uh, a liver resection, normally there's a very um, good response in the liver growing back, and it's very brisk and active. If you actually ablate the macrophages before you do the surgery, the liver doesn't grow back, and it, 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 this regenerative repair uh, mechanism fails. If you look at this product that I've talked about, CSF1, that's actually uh, made by macrophages, and you look at a CSF1-deficient mouse, so this mouse has macrophages, but it doesn't have this macrophage factor, CSF1. Again, you get a failure of repair, so the dark bars here are the normal mouse, the, the regeneration, the light gray bars, uh, the um, CSF1 deficient mouse. So this molecule and these cells seem to be very important in liver regeneration. And I put this little movie clip up, partly to show you just how beautiful the arrangement of these macrophages that live in the liver are. And they each have their arms on the shoulders of about six or eight or 10 uh, hepatocytes. And they have a very close relationship with them, uh, and they obviously speak to each other. And you can see why we think they might have an important role in talking to each other from this uh, relationship. And if you look at the same macrophages in the spleen, they look completely different. They look like little green blobs, and they don't have any sort of relationship with the cells around them.
So what happens if you give CSF1 to a healthy mouse? Well, what happens is that you get increased cell division in the liver, and that's what all these little brown and green spots are, and these are the controls on the left, and the liver weight actually increases. So CSF1 seems to drive liver regeneration, even though it doesn't have a direct effect on the liver cells, it's having an effect on the macrophages. And we can look at this in a, in a different model that's more like cirrhosis. And in this model, uh, mice have been treated with carbon tetrachloride over an eight-week period, which causes fibrosis and scarring in the liver, very much like cirrhosis. And if you uh, do a liver resection in these mice and give them the CSF1C afterwards, then they show increased proliferation and the liver gets bigger compared with the, the control animals. So not just in healthy mice, but in diseased mice, CSF1 seems to have an important role. So I guess the question then is, can macrophages or macrophage progenitors stimulate liver growth? And um, there are already human studies going on to actually look at this. And this is a study from Germany, um, which what they did was they took patients who were about to undergo cancer surgery, who needed a procedure to try and make the future liver remnant bigger. And the procedure was to basically block off uh, a vein to the part of the liver that was about to be removed. And what that does is it makes the rest of the liver get bigger. So, and what they did from these, uh, with these patients was they isolated their own bone marrow progenitor cells. These are macrophage progenitor cells. And cleaned them up and grew them up so that there were more of them than there were before and then injected them back into the liver um, of the uh, patients on the side uh, that, that wasn't being blocked off. So these coils are blocking off the blood supply to this side of the liver, and this is where the, the um, cells are given to the other side. And what they showed was they got bigger hypertrophy of the liver remnant than if they hadn't done that, which is very interesting. And this is you know, an example of cell therapy in action uh, and there are trials of similar approaches in cirrhosis in, in Edinburgh and in Birmingham uh, underway at the moment. And I understand that there's another year to go of recruitment before the trial is likely to, to finish. So uh, it may be possible to modify liver regeneration or to repair the liver or to recover some function using this kind of cell therapy. So either using macrophages the product of macrophages, which I talked about, CSF1, progenitor cells, which are, are sort of like um, a little bit more differentiated than stem cells, or stem cells themselves, which have this ability to change into all different kinds of cell um, uh, types. And there's a lot of interest in this um, area at the moment. Now, part of the reason that... Um, regeneration fails in cirrhosis is that there's this irretrievable damage or irreparable damage to the liver scaffold. And the, the liver has quite a complicated structure. This is a um, sort of a cartoon showing the, the complex arrangements of blood vessels and cells and they're uh, involved in, they're sort of organized in hexagonal plates. So trying to replicate that is quite difficult. People have made artificial scaffolds using um, uh, a variety of different polymeric compounds and, and sort of, um, 
tried to grow simple tissues, and this is the most famous and widely known one, which is the human ear grown on the back of a nude mouse. So this is, um, but an ear is quite a simple thing to grow in a way because it only has one cell type in it, which is a chondrocyte because it's made of cartilage. A liver is much more complicated, and um, making a scaffold uh, that would match the, the liver is technically much more demanding. But something, there's a new kid on the block, which is tissue printing. And it's actually possible to load up inkjet printers of a certain kind with cells and with hydrogel and to print an organ with a three-dimensional inkjet printer. And this is an example. This is not uh, an artist's impression. This is actually a photograph of a liver that's been printed using a 3D printer in Japan uh, by Sugimoto in Kobe. And this, he's actually using this for, in a different way, not to try and create an organ to transplant, but to understand the relationship between um, tumors and blood vessels to enable him to do uh, more accurate and effective surgery. But the technology is there to try and print an organ. And people have already tried to print kidneys and, uh, and other um, tissues. If um, another way that people are approaching the same problem of scaffold is the decel resell technology. And what that does is, what, this is a, a, a mouse um, liver here. And what they've done is they've digested the cells away from the mouse liver progressively, and you can see it becoming progressively fainter until you've got this jellyfish-like ghost under section E here. And this process washes all the cells out but re retains the scaffold um, of the liver, the structure of the liver. And if you actually look at the detailed um, scaffold that's left behind, it's incredible. And th this is down to sinusoidal level, um, incredibly small um, vessels here. And under the electron microscope, the, the vessel walls and the structural arrangements of the bile ducts and everything else in the liver is maintained. And then what they've done is to put cells back in, in sequence, different types of cells, to see if they can actually recreate the, the liver uh, in this D-cell recell technology. And these, this bottom panel here shows the artificial liver that they've reseeded, and this is the normal liver at the top. And you'll notice that there are black holes, and um, it's not quite as neat as the, the top control liver, but it's actually not bad. And these livers have actually been transplanted back into mice and have actually um, shown function. So, so that's quite incredible. But how would that work in humans? Well, we, I said we don't have enough donors. We don't have enough suitable donors. We have quite a lot of unsuitable donors uh, who, for one reason or another, we can't use their liver. And it's possible that such livers could be uh, decellularized, leaving a scaffold, and then this, because this is a chronic condition which lasts many years, a patient's own cells could be harvested and used to repopulate the liver scaffold, which could then be transplanted back in. And, and that's the, the model that people are, are looking at in the brave new world. D-cell recell technology isn't, and tissue-printed organs do have their problems, though. They, they lack the subtlety of cell-cell interaction. 
usually it's impossible to recreate, particularly the immune cell compartment and, and the progenitor and the niche uh, compartments, which contain all the stem cells. And um, the, the patients would still theoretically require surgery, but it does have potential, and I would um, suggest you should watch this space because it, it may well come to a hospital near you in the next 20 years or so. So what is the future for our yellow man? Uh, I think it's a, transplant surgery is going to have a, an ongoing and important role, but I think that tissue engineering and cell therapy are increasingly going to interact with that and that we'll be looking at composite approaches to uh, some patients. Uh, we may even be able to um, tailor our approaches to cirrhosis so that if you detect a patient very early who is likely to go on to develop liver failure in the future, we may be able to modulate their cells since we now understand what the signaling pathways are to prevent disease progression. Uh, if people present with intermediate disease, we may be able to program cells to actually repair the, the disease, including the, the scaffold. And if they're so scarred and late, then uh, conventional transplantation will continue to have a role but we may also be able to harness some of the power of tissue engineering and cell therapy to create new livers or new parts of livers um, to help patients. So I think um, Conan Doyle and uh, Sherlock Holmes's character would appreciate that this problem of chronic liver disease is far from elementary, and they would probably, I hope, um, uh, applaud the ingenious approaches that uh, other researchers as well as our team are uh, employing to try and address the problem of um, cirrhosis and chronic liver failure. That's, thank you very much. This production is brought to you 